This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Coming up at the top of Hour 2, Shana Goldman from The Athletic. little tour around the NHL. All your hot-button topics and teams. Islanders, Rangers, Vancouver Canucks. should probably have a little peek at the Buffalo Sabres as well. In the meantime, all eyes are on Stockholm. It's the NHL Global Series with four games. The Ottawa Senators with Daniel Alfredson behind the bench. Nice touch. Uh, face off against the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, last time around, Alex DeBrinket stung them hard. We'll see what happens here in just under 90 minutes' time. Mike Zeisberger from NHL.com joins me now from Stockholm. Dr. Zed, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great, Jeff. I'm actually in a cab uh, right now. Uh, so if you hear me getting out, the, the joys of uh, live radio, but... Uh, just came from the presentation of the inaugural yep. uh, Boreas Balming Courage Award to Nick Lidstrom and now heading to the arena for the game. And it's uh, it's been a great few days, and uh, we haven't even dropped the puck yet. What was that like? Just as an aside, before we get to the games, I mean, first of all, like personally, and I always say, people living in Perry Sound or Boston Bruins fans, cover your ears. I think Nick Lidstrom was the best defenseman the NHL ever saw. Boreas Solomon, I was a huge fan of growing up as a, as a kid, uh, whether it was with the Maple Leafs, whether it was in Canada Cup 76 and that standing ovation, uh, etc. One of the players that I first really identified with as a, a as a kid, still blaze number. Every time, anytime I see someone wearing 21, I always think about Boreas Solomon, no matter what team they're on but what was this what was this ceremony like for uh for for nick lidstrom well it was amazing and and he admitted today that you know uh he knew boria he said boria was my idol growing up but i never had the you know what to ever come up and say hey boria you know <laughs> you're you're my idol he you know and you would think a guy that won the, the norris seven times and had, had a had a handful of stanley cups in there would uh you know have the for luck yeah I don't know the stones to, to say that, but he said he never did. And, and Jeff, I got to say, you know, uh, growing up in Toronto, like uh, it was the same way. 21 is equated to bore you saw me. And you, you think about that. And we know how big we thought he was. Well, I've got to tell you that there's a six part, uh, doc, docu-series, uh, the premiered the other night. It was like Hollywood, uh, Swedish style, red carpet. It's called Salming. Um, and it, it goes from his humble beginnings to where he ended up. And it, it, there are posters, pla- posters plastered all over Stockholm, the train station. You can't go by a wall without it being there. Uh, mm-hmm. Today, you know, it, it, all the people that came in the red carpet, Zetterberg and, and, and Brendan Shanahan and Iserman and, and Matt Sundin and Lidstrom, and then today um, – you know, to get this award, there were more than 20 former Swedish NHLers on hand to see Matt Sundin uh, present this award to Nick Lidstrom, who, all, by the way, is also part of uh, the AF, ALS, uh, Matt Sundin's, uh, or sorry, uh, Borja Salming Foundation, which goes for research um, for ALS. And, and he's on that he's on that committee. He's one of the board of directors. And it was very emotional. Uh, Boria's, uh, uh, you know, uh, wife Pia was there, and she she was she welled up when she saw this because she says she just can't believe the support and love that has come out not only from here in Sweden but as Canada from Canada as well. So it's been, 
you know, it's, it's, uh, this isn't my first rodeo as it isn't yours, Jeff. So uh, we've seen a few yeah. things, but uh, this was, this will go in the, in some of the top moments as, as one of the coolest things I've been able to cover and to experience. It's beautiful, Mike. That uh, that really is um, from Salming to to Lidstrom and will to Hedman to we'll see what happens with Rasmus Dahlin. I mean, there's a proud tradition of elite level defenders uh, that Sweden has put out, as there have been you know elite level forwards. Uh, one of them is tied to the lead for the uh, for the points in the NHL right now, and in, in Elias Pettersson. Um, yep. You know, I always think of Swedish goaltenders and and how great someone like Pelle Lindberg uh, could have been. And we think, of course, of the the fatal car crash of Philadelphia Flyers and that minder who was poised uh, to become one of the greatest of all time. Like w- when when the NHL goes to to different countries, really, what it does is it gives you a platform to talk about hockey in those countries, obviously. And the one thing that I'm amazed by, because I can't see it happening in North America, is how the Swedes completely revolutionized their their youth hockey. And after, you know, a squandered opportunity, after squandered... I mean, Euro was like in the early 2000s, Mike. Like, Swedish hockey was dead. So internationally, yep. Swedish hockey was dead. And they redid the entire program... And, you know, up into the age of, of 13, you know, there's no scores that are kept, no individual stats, no standings, um, no tryouts for teams. It's all just skill development. You play the games and you keep track of, of who's winning and who's losing, but there's no standings, um, you know, so there's no, you know, kids walking around school with the AAA jackets and, and the whole deal. And this is how many points that I have. It is all just based on skill development until you're 13 years old. Mike, you know hockey at every level is there any way in hell that that would ever happen in north america (laughs) well i mean it's interesting because uh you know matt talking to matt sundin uh recently you know the last couple of years there's been a little bit of dip in minor hockey here in sweden it's starting to pick up again there's ebbs and flows but you talk about you know late 90s early 2000s you know there was the Swedish hockey was struggling, and you know uh, we talk about solving open up, opening up the door for certain players, but you know Matt Sundin was kind of the next the next era, the next big thing, and all of a sudden yep. you had some of these other players stepping in. You had the Lidstroms and well, you know the Sedins, and and if you go back to 2002 at the Olympics. And, of course, Canada winning, and it was a great moment, obviously, for our country. But, you know, an argument could be made. Like, people forget. The Swedes waxed Canada in the first game. And an argument could be made Torpedo. that, number one, that that was the number, you know, that may have been the best I've ever seen Matt Sundin play hockey. And, number two, you know, Sweden arguably was the best team. I'm not saying they won. Obviously, they didn't win. But in terms of play, they have, may have been the best mm. best team to win, or sorry, the best team in terms of play. And then all of a sudden, we remember the goal from center at Belarus against uh, against Tommy Salo. Yeah. And there's a famous photo of Matt Sundin on his knees, looking up at the sky, almost to say, "Did that really happen?" Um, and they, yeah. you know, we know that they rebound to win it in 2006, which is one of the biggest sports moments in this country. But, you know, the way that they bounce back from what you talked about, you know, that kind of dip in the late 90s to the spike that it got 
by the way that they played, even though, even though that, you know, the, the disappointment and heartache of the loss in Belarus and Salt Lake City in 02, but then the rebound in 06, mm-hmm. I think that spiked it again. And then all of a sudden you've got the next era, like the Victor Hedman's coming out. And, and you know, um, it is really impressive uh, when you look at the domino effect that, uh, that Swedish hockey has had with a lot of these stars. And it all started with Borja Salming and Inga Hammerstrom. It sure did, um, and who knew there was gonna it was gonna explode like this? Certainly not us back then. You know, I, I went back and looked at an old Canada Cup book, uh, the Canada Cup nineteen seventy six, which was the first real big big tournament for me. I just remember being uh, just in love with a the players, but b the jerseys. Like oh, the, yeah. the Swedes always had the gr- they always had the great look. Right? The Trey Kroner, like that yellow, that blue, all of it, Mike. Like I as a kid, and still to the like just right beside me here. If you're watching on on. on 360 right i got my trey kroner took i love this hat uh the blue the yellow the three crowns like the swedes just from a stylistic point of view mike the swedes had it down years ago well definitely and you know what if they ever start coming out with these you know we live in the era of the third jersey and trying to market (laughs) if they ever change for the third jersey they got to go into the fashion jail okay jeff because that's (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's not okay. All right? When you yes, hit on something. I'm, I'm with okay? you. When you hit on something yep. and you've found perfection, don't touch it. Please don't touch it. And I'm with you. One of the great jerseys, not only in hockey, not only in international sports, but to me in all of sports. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to see the Ottawa Senators face off against the Detroit Red Wings here in a little while, and it's a real great touch having Daniel Alfredson on the bench. It's wonderful that Alfredson is back uh, in the mix. We knew the acrimony between Alfredson and the Ottawa Senators' late owner, Eugene Melnick, and I don't think it's a coincidence that we started to see... You know, it started to see Daniel Alfredson re-enter the Ottawa Senators' equation as Pierre Dorian made his way out, almost as if Alfredson wanted to wait for, you know, the entire Melnick era to be done with the Ottawa Senators. I don't see that as a coincidence, do you, Mike? Oh, not at all. And and we remember he had a he did have a cup of, cup of coffee with him after he retired, but decided to walk away uh, for his own reasons. But, yeah. you know, it, it's great to see that Daniel Alfredson is part of part of that organization. And, Jeff, it's always hard and difficult to watch from the outside looking in when you see such an iconic player divorce himself from the, from the organization that he started with. And, and look at, I mean, we, yeah. you don't have to look any further than Toronto with what happened with Dave Keon who wanted nothing to do with the Maple Leafs organization until Brendan Shanahan came in and mended that fence. And and it was great to see Dave Keon uh, on the ice the other night uh, at the Hall of Fame uh, game and then around at the Hall of Fame. You know, there's some things go together, and and there's some divorces that you just want to see patched up. Uh, Dave Keon on the Leafs is, is one, and you know what, to be a lot more current, Daniel Alfredson, I mean, he was the Ottawa Senators for a long time. Anybody that's ever dealt with this guy, I mean, he is the most bubbly, friendly, outgoing person you'd ever want to meet. Oh, yeah. And I think it's, I think it's a huge plus for that organization, uh, Jeff, that he is back in the mix with the Ottawa Senators. 
Couldn't agree more. And, you know, before you came on, Elliot and I were talking about, and I don't know, Thaw seems too strong, although it seems as if, you know, Matt Sundin has, for the past however many years, been sort of at arm's length from the Toronto Maple Leafs organization. And and I wonder if, you know, the Maple Leafs being over there and Matt Sundin being, you know, part of team functions. Again, I don't want to say thoughts. I don't know that it's ice cold, but do you think that, that there might be a sort of warming up between Matt Sundin and the Toronto Maple Leafs and by maybe some chance he'd get more involved with Toronto? Well, I can only say this, Jeff, and, uh, you know, we've known each other for a while, so I know how well, Jeffy, that you can connect the dots when I, when I, when I plop some information <laughs> on your table. So, yep. uh, you know, uh, this, this banquet tonight uh, for the Gory uh, Salming Courage Award was held at the world-famous Cafe Opry nightclub, and you know what? Guess who was spotted talking for, for a significant long time? Brendan Shanahan and Matt Sundin. You connect the dots. I can't say that anything's going to come of that, but it all starts with conversation, mm. and they had a lengthy one tonight. That's awesome. Uh, okay, i got about two minutes left with you here, Dr. Zed. Um, haven't really talked about the game we're going to see here later on this afternoon. Detroit Red Wings and Ottawa Senators, the last time these two teams mixed, it was a Saturday afternoon, and it was Detroit, and it was Larkin, and it was DeBrinkett, and it was the Ottawa Senators going after DeBrinkett, and it was, it, it was fun. It was a flat-out fun hockey game. What are you looking for this afternoon with these two teams? Well, you know what? You, there, there is a rivalry brewing here going the last year, the end of last season. If you recall, uh, oh, yeah. the Detroit Red Wings, you know, had a sniff of the playoffs, and then the Ottawa Senators just went and spanked them in back-to-back games. Um, you know, for me, uh, you know, and I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. You know, after we talk about Tampa and and Toronto and Boston in that division, but the three teams that I thought were ascending this year would be Ottawa, Detroit, and Buffalo. Those were teams that I thought were on the rise and would fight for playoff spots. And, and so I think this is, this is just more than a global series game. This is kind of, these are the games head-to-head that, you know, if one of these teams looks back uh, in a few months and gets in the playoffs and said, what was one of the turning points? It'll be head-to-head uh, against the other one. I think in, in terms of Ottawa and Detroit, they're kind of in the same position, and they're fighting for that uh, spot. So it's going to be fascinating to watch tonight. And, uh, yes, all eyes on Debrinket. And, uh, you know, we all know how the Kachuks like to uh, take the other team's best player <laughs> and uh, negate him. And that's I, – I, I'm being as politically correct as I can. Yes, I understand. Real quick, 30 seconds. Who is the most popular current Swede on this trip – Who's the uh, who, who's the big hockey celebrity right now in Stockholm of all these four teams we're going to watch? Oh, it's got to be Willie Stiles. Come on, I mean, uh, with the with the start <laughs> that he's on, William Nylander and that blonde yeah. flow going. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's all Willie Stiles. It's Willie Stiles' world, uh, Jeff, and we're all living in it. Uh, is he taking public transportation to the game uh, on the seventeenth against the Detroit Red Wings? Uh, well, I took, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. There's no banquet that night. So probably, uh, you know what, uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, we know Willie, Willie Stiles took it to one of the Leaf games and that made a big headlines in Toronto. We'll see if he does it here, man. 
We'll uh, we'll stay tuned. Uh, Zyz, you're the best. Uh, as always, enjoy yourself. Zyz, while you're in Sweden, make good decisions. Wink, wink. Make good decisions. Well, you're not here to, to cast me astray, so I will make good decisions. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Always, uh, always a blast Thanks, being Mike. on with you, my friend. You're the best, man. Uh, I love that guy. Mike Zeisberger from NHL.com. Man, do I go back with his eyes. Oh, okay. Um, thanks, Mike Zeisberger, from that checking in from Stockholm. Time now for Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bets Local. Matt Marchese, how are you today, buddy? I'm good. I'm coming to you live from Beaton, Ontario on FaceTime. So we are, uh, we're, we're raring and ready to go here, Jeffy. The the home of Jim Rutherford. Are there statues in Beaton of Jim? Haven't seen one yet. I'm sure they will erect one soon when they build a new arena that's like a hundred years old. So it definitely needs a a new one. But anyway, on to the uh, on to the game yes. on the ice tonight. So Canucks at Flames. Puck line is Flames minus one and a half. Canucks are six and eighteen in the last twenty four meetings in Calgary. The over is twenty three eleven and five in the last thirty nine meetings, and the home team is seven and three in the last ten meetings. I do wonder um, as the Vancouver Canucks continue to look to bolster this already impressive team, if there's any potential for the Calgary Flames and the Vancouver Canucks to do business. Like, we'll see them compete on the ice. And look, uh, great last game by Jacob Markstrom, uh, former Vancouver Canuck netminder, now uh, Calgary Flame netminder, as we all know. Um, but the one story coming out of Calgary is not so much everything must go, but come in and have a look at our showroom. Uh, there's, there's, there's no sticker price for your Hannafins and your Tanevs and your Zadorovs and maybe even your Kadris, but make us an offer. Craig Conroy very much in listing mode right now for a lot of players. Um, this is a, a team that has, you know, pretty much decided that there's not a lot of there there right now, and it, it needs a shakeup. And we're focusing mainly on the blue line uh, with those defensemen that I mentioned. Uh, I really do think that, you know, th- there's a real good opportunity for teams specifically on Chris Tanev, who I wonder if he just wants to go home. Uh, at this point, to to Toronto to play with the Maple Leafs. Uh, the Maple Leafs have been attached to Nikita Zadorov, although I can also see the Vancouver Canucks uh, being involved in these conversations as well. Tonight will be an interesting one. It'll give us a chance to speculate about if there could be business done between these two teams. Uh, that's Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sportsbook, Bet Local. When we come back, Shana Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast stops by for a tour around the NHL. Shana's on top of it. And then we'll get back on the Vancouver page. What a game last night. And we'll see them back in action tonight. One, two, three in scoring. JT Miller, Elias Patterson, Quinn Hughes. Man, Vancouver's good. From sportsnet.ca, Ian McIntyre on the Canucks. All that in hour two. Don't go anywhere. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The JD Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Glad to have you aboard, either across the Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet 360, or your favorite podcast platform. Ian McIntyre from Sportsnet.ca coming up at the bottom of the hour. We will talk about the juggernaut Vancouver Canucks. They may never lose another game again.
won two and three in scoring. Brock Besser tied with a couple of other players, most notably Kyle Connor, Austin Matthews for the goal scoring lead. We're talking about coach of the year for Rick Tockett. We're talking about a goalie of the year for Thatcher Demko. Yeah, they look good, and they're in action tonight against the Calgary Flames. We'll have a little look back at uh, what we saw last night, the comeback win against the New York Islanders, and preview tonight's uh, Calgary Flames matchup as well. Here in the meantime, we'll probably dip our beak into the Vancouver Fountain here in a couple of seconds and also talk about the Islanders and the Sabres and the Rangers. But I think we're going to start off by talking about tennis with Shana Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast. Hello, Shana. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Uh, I am well. So here, I want to tell you something about myself quickly here. So I, I want to start off by, by getting a, a tennis update from you. Because for years, and my schedule is such that it makes it really hard, but I've been really trying to get back into watching a lot of tennis. I watch a lot of hockey. I watch a lot of baseball. That tends to occupy a lot of my time between that and news and kids. It doesn't make for a whole lot of free time to get into another sport. But I love tennis. And before my mom passed away when I was 16 years old, she desperately, Shana, desperately wanted me to be a tennis player. And I liked tennis. I was never good at it. I kind of enjoyed it, but not too much. But man, I tell you, uh, what was the name of my instructor? Um, uh, Vlasta Brankovsky. It's a legendary tennis instructor in Toronto. She taught for like 40 or 50 years in Toronto. So I went to Brankovsky Tennis School. And I was average at best, but she always wanted me to be a tennis player. She loved Jimmy Connors and Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe, uh, Martina Navrasilova, uh, Chrissy Everett. Like those were, those were her tennis players. First of all, before I ask you for an on-ramp into tennis, give us a snapshot of where men's and women's, women's tennis is right now. Well, right now we have the women's season is over. Uh, the WTA finals were okay. Uh, there's definitely some mismanagement there, and it feels like they're not using their resources to the potential that they have, I would say. And on the men's tour, we have the mm -hmm. ATP final going on right now, which is super exciting. And then we get a nice little pause before next season kicks off with the Australian Open, which is so out of your time range. But then after that, we'll get into the grass courts and the clay courts that are so up your alley that you have to watch. Like if I can get up, I tape it and I'll get up at like eight because before that, it's not happening for me. Yeah. But you can watch it live at, you know, five, six a.m. when you're up and buzzing in the morning. But he, but he, well, I get up early, but that's the thing, too. Like I'll get texts from you. At, like I'll wake up and I'll grab my phone and I go, oh, I got a couple of texts from Shana. And it's like 343 and then like. Uh, four fifty-two. I'm like, what do you? Oh yeah, tennis, right? And then there's like a, a tennis. That's update. the time of night like, I, I can't thrive, do that. <laughs> oh, Listen, no. we're built different, so you and me okay? Are completely but different people, yes. <laughs> that's what makes that's what makes following tennis so intimidating for me. It's like, do I have to be like Shana and be up at like four, like not go to bed until six o'clock in the morning because I want to want to watch all these tennis finals? No, no, definitely not. I would say like the Australian Open is the only one that you would have to really like hunker down for but honestly it's more favorable to you than me like if it starts at 5 a.m eastern which is prime time there it's pretty perfect for you mm -hmm. i just know i can't wake up it for is. that so i'm gonna stay i'm gonna stay up for it and just drag on my day after how good so i've, I've wanted i've wanted to watch this but again like you get carried away i've always i've wanted to watch breakpoint how good a docuseries is that 
it's really cool. It's nice because like it's such a, tennis is so different from what we think about with hockey, right? Like you're traveling around the world. It's it's so individual. Yeah. And you get to see the physical aspects of it. You get to see the travel aspects. You get to see the mental aspects. You get to know the players. And some, you know, have such great personality. So it's nice to see someone like maybe Maria Sakari, who you didn't know a lot about, like get to know another side of her. And it makes you appreciate the players even more. And I think it makes you appreciate watching them and do their craft even more. It, it's such a cool series. Have I ever told you about the uh, the docu series that I've, I'm giving this away here? The the docu series I've always wanted to be part of or always wanted to make. Have I talked to you about this before? I don't think so. Okay, so hear me out on this one. I, I think this is a sweet spot of the bat for you. It's a surprise, surprise. It's a hockey docu series. What it does <laughs> is it takes it takes the same editorial point of view as the old HBO 24-7 Road to the Winter Classic Washington and Pittsburgh, which we all loved, which was out of the control of the NHL, which made it better because it didn't get, you know, a fresh coat of paint every couple of scenes. It was like, it was as close to legit as possible. I want to do something like that, but follow women's hockey, Team Canada, Team USA. So it's not just interviews about how much they respect one another and, oh, Hillary Knight is fantastic and I love Marie-Philippe Poulain. I mean, you've talked to the athletes before. You understand the animosity and the legitimate hatred between the two. Like, I can still recall, and she's one of my favorite people uh, in the world, not just favorite players, but Cassie Campbell-Pascal telling me once that before, um, before Salt Lake, and she's never told me who the player is, She's going to keep this one in her hip pocket forever. That after a world championship, when uh, USA beat Canada, going down Handshake Alley, one of the American players shook Cassie's hand and said to her, Cassie never win. And Cassie (laughs) wrote it down and took it with her everywhere. Like stuff like that we never hear, you never see. We have this idea. I think the casual hockey fan has this idea that you know there's a there's a lot of niceties involved in women's hockey where as you know that's about a million times away from the truth i'd like to do a real docu-series on just how nasty it is between the two sides would you watch that shana goldman absolutely i'm biased though you know i'm gonna like that that is so up my alley but it, (laughs) it would be cool because you know their schedule so unique to see their training to see like not for nothing these players don't have the same resources as the men do all the time so it would be nice to see how they go about Mm -hmm. their day and they also deal with different challenges than the men you know like they get to play each other a lot more on the international stage and it's best on best like how do you prepare for that how do you you know so frequently go especially with the new league starting up from teammate to enemy you know so quickly i I think that there's so many different elements you'd want to see and you'd get to see the personality of it like maybe a behind the scenes of hillary knight filming her tiktoks and showing her personality which I don't think we get enough of from some of the players and even the side of like prepping for games. Like I have a million questions. I'm not like a makeup person. And I would sit there being like, how does your makeup look like that at the end of a game? Like, how do you prepare for this so you can wear (laughs) mascara and still look good afterwards? Like I, I need to know every little detail from, you know, the battles on the ice to everything off the ice. Like, yes, absolutely. Sign me up, inject it into my veins. I'm ready. I I I know. I, I just want to hear Hillary Knight like blasting Renata fast, like that. That's what I want to hear. I just want like all the petty stuff that we see from the guys. I just want all that pettiness from the from the women as well. That's that that yeah. to me is the hook. 
like just just how much animosity there really is uh, between the two sides. Okay, um, NHL. Do you want to focus on positive or negative? How are you feeling today? What's your vibe? What's your vibe check? <laughs> um, let's go. Let's go positive to start. I like to end on negative. I think it's more fun. So let's warm up with the positive. Warm up with the positive. All right. Let's talk about. Artemi Panarin and the New York Rangers. Now, it was a couple of years ago that I voted for Artemi Panarin number one on my Hart Trophy ballot. And we'll see where the season goes and we'll see where the season heads. But right now, I'm getting the soap and warm water feeling, as I like to say, about Artemi Panarin once again. To the point where, if you're a slumping New York Ranger, how do you not shave your head right now? Because it seems to have worked for Artemi (laughs) Panarin and maybe, damn it, it can work for you. Your thoughts on what we're seeing from the New York Rangers right now, a team that is down Adam Fox and Philip Heedle as well, to say nothing of Shosturkin. Yeah, right. Um, Panarin's crushing it. And, you know, I think a lot of people saw the hype in his game before he came to New York and when he first started in New York. And there's been some underwhelming performances for his standards. I mean, he's still been fantastic. But, you know, and then we talk about the playoffs and he disappears and things like that. I think one of the biggest issues has been five-on-five play. And it's a team-wide thing and not just a Panarin problem. And it feels like he has a little bit more freedom to play to his strengths, which if you're a coach, I understand wanting structure and wanting to mitigate risk. But when you have someone like Panarin that is so good with the puck on his stick, I think you just have to let him cook and see what's going to happen. And it feels like the Rangers are doing that. The other part of it is it feels like they're maximizing his line finally. To see him start the year with Mm. Filipino, I think, is something – a lot of people following the team have wanted to see for a while because they're two creative players. But it's Alexi Lafreniere with Panarin that they mesh so well together because you have Panarin who is so strong on the puck and he's so strong at getting the puck back if he doesn't have possession. And he's so good at slowing the game mm-hmm. down as well. So the fact that he can do that, he can buy all the time in the world for Lafreniere to get to the net front, to get into position to thrive. And you see it, you know, they're a better team when the two of them are on the ice together. But Panarin, too, it's definitely more than just who he's playing with, right? It's an individual thing as well. Mm -hmm. You see on the power play, he's increasing his shot volume, his shot quality, which generally speaking on the Rangers power play, you know that right side is kind of only going to be used for passing. He's going to set up Zibanejad. He's going to set up Kreider. But the fact that he's willing to take the shot, too, it adds more dimension. It adds something for penalty killers to think about a little bit more that you can't just cheat towards Zibanejad and that you know, helps them elevate something that's already a strength. So for me right now, definitely a heart contender and there's tough competition. Thank you, the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah. But he he really, he Everybody really is killing it. Vancouver. And I think, yeah, right. Um, but I think if anyone was wondering, like, is his game declining? Does he still have that five on five pop? He's answering it wholeheartedly so far. Uh, he really is. And, you know, one of the things that I'm impressed by with the New York Rangers, and we saw quite the opposite from a team like the Calgary Flames um, after they lost to the Edmonton Oilers two years ago in the playoffs, um, that loss to the New Jersey Devils, for some teams that would be crushing. Like when you lose to your natural rivals, and we all know the animosity between the Rangers and the Devils and infiltrating each other's ranks, etc. I mean, that could be a crushing crushing blow hasn't affected them at all now a coaching change certainly helps that but it isn't as if you know the the new york rangers completely redid their roster like there's some new faces will cooley is a is a a bright new face 
Um, Blake Wheeler uh, is, is a bright new face on the team, but it's not as if they made wholesale changes after the New Jersey series. They've kind of come back with the, the same faces. There's just a new coach conducting things. And how much do you think of Alexi Lafreniere's success is due to the fact that, listen, uh, Peter Laviolette is putting him in the top six, something that Rangers fans have clamored for for a long time because you can't really get a peek under the hood of someone like Alexi Lafreniere until you put them in a prime position. Your thoughts on all of that word salad? <laughs> yeah, it's it's not just putting him in the prime position, but giving him a chance to thrive there, right? Like he had a really tough preseason. I know what can you draw about preseason. Sometimes I think – you know, there's overreactions to it, or maybe if this were a year ago, we would have seen him demoted by now, right? Like Gerard Gallant is not some player development coaching wizard at all. He definitely doesn't lean on the young players. And we saw the experiments of him with Lafreniere on the right and how it didn't last. And I like that Laviolette yeah. put him there and let him stay there and had the confidence in him to just play through it. And I think that's really working out for him. But yeah, it feels like you know, the Rangers have been reactionary in the past. Um, look at the Tom Wilson situation and look at what they did to their roster. And this time around, I think that they know what their strengths are. I think they know the players they need to maximize and need to elevate. And it was more about kind of cleaning up the areas of weakness, which is five-on-five -five play. And that's a huge area of weakness. Yes, you can mask it with elite goaltending, which they have. Yes, you can mask it with an elite power yep. play, which they have. But you need to take it up a notch everywhere else where the majority of the game is played. And it's things like cleaner breakouts out of their own zone. That I think is a huge plus. The fact that they brought in someone like Eric Gustafson, who is probably the best value signing this year, is a big testament to that yeah. because he's someone that can help that third pair actually move the puck up the ice. And I think we're seeing, you know, it's it's interesting to see a coaching change when the roster doesn't change much because you really can see the impact on individual players. So Zibanejad picking it up, Panarin, like we talked about, Lafreniere picking it up, and and players like Jacob mm -hmm. Truba too. I think his game is so much better this year than it was last year, and that's really important for the Rangers because they can't just have it that it's Adam Fox and Ryan Langer and killing it, and then the rest of the game, you just hope everything's okay. There's a big game coming up against the New Jersey Devils in a couple of days as well, so we'll uh, we'll pay attention to that one. Meantime, sticking with the good because you're uh, on the, the sunny side of the mountain, not the shady side of the mountain like me. Um, you're still optimistic <laughs> about you know sports and life in general, haven't been jaded yet by this industry. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks, like I, I don't know, like the, I, guess, I guess like the only question you ask about Vancouver is how long can they do this? Can they do this all season? Uh, when does the drop off happen? Are there any underlying indications that a drop off will happen? Because, you know, you click on NHL.com and you see Vancouver Canucks players populating every single square, whether it's points, whether it's goals, whether it's save percentage. You have a look at, you know, coach of the year candidates, Rick Tockett's right up around the top. What are your thoughts on Vancouver right now? Are things great or really great? There's a hard-hitting question. Okay, I think we can break things down for the Canucks. There's three ways to look at it. There's lucky, there's good, there's great. I think okay. Quinn Hughes is great. I think he's above great. I think Elias Patterson is above great. Thatcher Demko, right now, leading candidate for the Vezna, obviously. He doesn't have the easiest workload. He is absolutely responding to it in the best possible way. He is crushing it. One of the, he is the best goalie in the league in goal saved of expected everything the Canucks could want and more. That is a rebound season that we love to see, but there's some good. The five on five play isn't terrible, right? It's good, 
but there's a lot of luck involved. This is a team that in all situations leads the league with a plus 34 goal differential. This is a team that has the biggest Mm -hmm. gap between their expected goal generation and their actual goal generation. And that I think is really important to highlight too. If you're scoring, it's like 55 goals above expected, right? Finishing talent, you're going to expect to elevate that number. And they have finishing talent. They have it in Pedersen. They have it in Kuzmenko. They have it in Miller, right? A lot of teams can outscore what they're expected to because we're basing that solely on shot quality and we're not adding in that finishing element to it. But you don't see it usually sustain at this level to this degree. And they're saving so many more goals than expected too because of the stellar goaltending. The difference I think that'll take the Canucks from this lucky good team to a true great team, and right now they look like a playoff team, but there's a difference between playoff team and contender, is going to be improving along the way while you're getting all of this puck luck. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. I think that you can look at the Canucks and say, this is great and wonderful, but what with what you've done, but a lot of teams when they play and outscore their problems get stagnant because they don't think that they need to you know, adjust things below the surface because they're getting the results. And that's just not the case in this league. So if you want to be the Vancouver Canucks and you want to not just make the playoffs, you want to thrive, this is where you need to put in the work. You need to clean up some things below the surface at five on five. And then I think you can sustain the luck and turn that into a great season. Can can I ask you a geeky question here? As I, let me just push up my glasses here. Hang on. Let me ask you a hockey (laughs) geek question right now. Um, there's, there, there's one, there's always one conversation, uh, that I have with a couple of people that, that work in the league, uh, in analytics departments. And they always warn me, they say, be careful of the public expected goal models that are out there. This, these people are always yeah. say like, look, we're, we're past that. Just be careful. Like when, when you, when you, when you throw it around, you talk about expected goals, how much do you grain of salt that one stat based on what the public can see? Well, the big difference between public and private is pre-shot movement, which we have proxies for in the public. We can try to see if it's a rush shot. There's Mm -hmm. proxies for that. If it's a rebound or a second chance, which would up the value of a shot, but we don't have things. That makes it really challenging. What we do have, though, is some public tracking that we can use and try to tie it together. And even, you know, the NHL edge data, you can use zone time to a point. But if you tie it with the expected goals that we have, plus the available passing tracking that you can find, you know, you look at Corey's site and look at all three zones, you can see, you know, a little bit more, you know, under the hood, you have a better indication. I don't think you can use any one stat, especially that's in the public sphere, and use that in its entirety and say, this is it, this is the story, because you'll always be missing context. You need to use everything that's available. And I do think that at this point, we're kind of at our wit's end of what's publicly available. And we're craving more because I think we're past what we've been provided. I think there's so much more information out there that we need that teams have that the public simply doesn't. Mm -hmm. But as someone who's had, you know, the chance to look at public versus private and see the differences, I think you learn a little bit more on how you should be using what's out there in the public and what other things you need to use to build up the context. So, you know, that's the difference here because we could look at the Canucks and say, well, their expected goals against is, you know, not what it should be, but then it's maybe their blocking pass is better than anybody. Like it's, it's important information to have to, to put the whole picture together. I still think the Canucks can be better below the surface though, but I'm not, I'm, I still think that they're good. 
I just think that they can be better and there is another couple gears to hit. And already they're so good. Um, okay, let me ask you about Fool's Gold and okay. one team specifically. Anaheim Ducks. Is that Fool's Gold? A little bit. Um, you know what? They had such a historically bad defensive season last year. It was so terrible. It was so yes. horrible that this is so much progress. It's so interesting to watch Greg Cronin come in there. He's not drastically changing the systems. He's going, this is how you're going to play them. This is, let me actually teach them to you and find different ways to communicate to different players so you know what you're doing. There's still some flaws. This is a team that got completely and totally outshot last night against the Avalanche, and you would expect that disparity to be whoa, there. Whoa, the Ducks whoa, aren't whoa, there whoa. yet. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let me just pause on that one. This was the like, I'm not I'm not much of a of a gambler, but even mm-hmm. I could have picked this one. Like three games and four nights for Anaheim, back to back, and they're going to altitude against the rested yeah. Colorado Avalanche team. Like I, I felt like honestly, there's one person I felt absolutely horrible for yesterday, and that was Lucas Dostal. Yeah, because it's like you you know when you're getting set up. Like I know in my industry when I'm getting set up to fail. Right, everyone in our, in our industry knows. Like, there are certain times where, okay, you're getting set up to fail here. Like, that was a no win. And I'm, like, to be honest with you, I'm surprised they hung with Colorado as long as they did. Like, until that third period explosion, I was like, you know, kind of low key here. Maybe Anaheim has Colorado right where they want them. You know, and then the third period happened. Anaheim just ran out of gas, and then that was it. I felt so bad for Lucas Dostal, who going into this one is probably thinking to himself, "All right." I'm getting set up to just run straight into a wall here. I'm 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 running the hundred yard dash in a ninety yard gym. Yeah, but to their credit, though, you know, like the Ducks and the Abs at five and five were pretty close in scoring chances. It was twenty three twenty two per natural statric in favor of the Avalanche. Like it was closer, but I think yeah, yeah that that was the game that they Wild, were because the shots were seventeen to two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would, you know, it, it was a lopsided one. You expect that. And I'm sure it's a good, like, reality check. And it's also, this was the game that you were built to fail to lose, you know. But what we've totally. seen from them, the resilience is so different from last year. It feels like it did a little more two years ago. Like, this was the young ducks. And look how fun and exciting they are. And they have that element to them. The other part of it that is so important is the rebound of John Gibson. And he's really been, mm. both goaltenders have been really good. But John Gibson's improved. It really impressed me in particular. We've seen him the last couple of years have a really good first half. And then it looks like what the Ducks are making him face on a nightly basis is just crushing him at a certain point, which honestly is inevitable when that's the workload you're handed on a nightly basis. And then the second half is just a total disaster, but he's keeping them in games too. And then they're actually building off of that, which is so different from last year, that it feels like maybe there's a chance mm-hmm. of more su- sustained success from the goaltenders. Like, if you're into the third period and your goalie gave you a chance in this game and now you can add some scoring pop, which, look at the lines. They have three deeper lines than they have in the past. You know, it, it's a step in the right direction for them without question. And you're starting to see a wink to the future as well. Like, you, this is like... We always talk about in sports, you sell either a wins or you sell hope. Like, Anaheim's selling hope big time. Like, if I'm an Anaheim Ducks fan, it's like, okay, now I know what this team's going to look like in a couple of years. And you can see how fast teams turn around uh, when they have elite-level players. Okay, uh, we're starting to get heavy on time, so want to make sure we get a few things in. Starting with the Buffalo Sabres. And starting with the Buffalo Sabres with Devin Levi. Now, 
I'm a big supporter of just about everybody before they go to the NHL spending some time in the American League. People who heard yesterday's show, I mean, I went on and on and on and on about how important the American League is. Um, but I, I really do think specifically for goaltenders, you have to spend some time there. Are there exceptions to the rule? Absolutely. Ken Dryden. And that's it. Uh, well, Tom Barrasso. Uh, but Ken Dryden, and that's it. Like, going from college hockey to the NHL as a goaltender, it doesn't happen. The NHL is such a hard league for everybody, but a really hard league for goaltenders. And most specifically, you need to spend time in the American Hockey League. And I know teams want to prove that they're smarter than everybody else. And, okay, uh, you're idiots, you know, hanging on to the history of, of what happens with college goaltenders. But how do you see the development here of, of Devin Levi? And I, I, I come at it from two different ways, too. One, for the Buffalo Sabres. And two, and this is where it hammers me, Shana, as a Canadian hockey fan, we don't have goalies. So please don't mess up the ones that look like they could have some potential in international hockey. Don't screw up what could be a good goaltender for Team Canada. Yeah, that's that's what matters because we're going to have some some nice bets to go on when we get some actual <laughs> international tournaments for the men. Oh, jeez. Um, oh, that you geez. need a better chance. Uh, you know, know what? The Levi situation is a tough one. I agreed going into the season with the decision to put him in net because I think you have to see what he can bring, right? You don't know until you give it a shot and you got a pretty solid indication at the end of last year, but it's such a small sample. Goalies are the hardest position to project totally. always and forever. Unless you're a goaltender, you literally don't ex- understand anything about it, which is fine, right? It's like their secret club and we can all try and fail, but you need a big sample of games. And even then, you, there's no guarantee, right? You know, it, it can be so erratic goalie yeah. numbers. So it's really tricky. Young goalies make it all the more difficult. Um, but I think that they had a nice indication based on his start, based on his career to this point, based on his start at the NHL level, based on his training camp, that he should start in net. But, you know, you're seeing the Sabres start to make some defensive improvements. They're not giving him the offensive support that's crushing him. But at the end of the day, he's appeared in seven games. He has two quality starts, one of which was excellent. That game against Minnesota was his absolute best of the year by far. It was a top-notch game. But otherwise, it's a little bit tougher. If there was a sign of hope that their offense is going to get better, I think I would say maybe give him a little bit more time. But with the Tage Thompson injury and now the team's trajectory – I get you want to tread water till he's back, but I don't know if this is the way to do it when the big picture is in mind. So I do wonder if maybe mm. it's worth giving him some time just to focus on his game. As long as it's not a, it's not a punishment. It's a go build your game, rebuild your confidence, and let us do the work in front of the net that when you come back, you're in a better position to succeed. I think that could be a good thing. I think that there are some really brilliant minds in that Sabres front office that know a lot more about goaltending than me. So I would trust that they kind of know the right way to handle goalie development. Uh, some of them, like Sam Ventura, were in Pittsburgh when they had Matt Murray. So I'd be curious what applies and doesn't apply and what they've learned from that situation. But it just seems like right now he's going to be hung out to dry because the offense is bad as it is. And now without Tage Thompson, I don't see him getting the goal support to have any chance of success and you want it that he can give him a chance to win and you want it that you know his development is installed and he he's not overwhelmed by this workload 
you know, one of the things that I'm endlessly, that I endlessly laugh about, and I'll ask you a couple of pointed questions and, and lead the witness to the answer that I want. Uh, <laughs> what is the one position that general managers consistently mess up on? Goaltending, of course. Who votes for the Vesna? You know, I, this one grinds my gears. It grinds my gears to no end. And as someone who now <laughs> writes about the awards on a yearly basis, right? I feel like we're getting somewhere yep. on the Norris and the Selkie. I've been asked about those awards after I write those big stories every year. My opinion I uh, on things and the Vesna, it literally doesn't matter. You know, I can like scream from the rooftops. This goalie has done this, this and this. It doesn't matter doesn't because matter. it's GMs for some odd reason picking it. I don't get it at all. Brian Burke always says we shouldn't pick it. Like as man, like give it, give it up to Brian Burke because he is self-aware. We should not pick this award as managers. We should. This is the one position we always screw up. Why are we voting for this award? Give it's them the rookie one place, of the year uh, that we mess up on a consistent basis. What's that? Give them rookie of the year. Give them something easy. This one isn't it. You go to the rookie tournament for the Buffalo Sabers. <laughs> That's the other thing. We keep talking about you know earned, not given. Holy smokes. Okay. Um, real quick, last one here for you. Uh, your thoughts on Edmonton? Uh, I listen. A two-game turnaround, come from behind win last night over the Seattle Kraken. Vincent DeHarnay almost threw the whole thing away by sliding it into his own net. Uh, just your thoughts in the the two-game snapshot here with Chris Knobloch. It's not like entirely surprising that the Oilers are bouncing back if they can get a couple saves. The the underlying numbers of five on five are are there, right? Their offensive creation is yep. there. A healthy Connor McDavid will help. He looked a little bit better. He looked a little faster last night. I think, you know, we've really seen his game. I get it. He's better at 50% than the average forward, but the Oilers are built to need him to do more. I can see the argument for a coaching change. I can see the argument against it and that they're a bigger fish to fry in Edmonton. Like, I don't know, Ken Holland, the person that put them in this position, but Mm -hmm. I'm really curious to see how Knobloch does because I think that he's a really smart mind. And I don't think the Oilers need a complete teardown from a coaching perspective. I think that they just need some tweaks and adjustments and better understanding on what's being asked of them. Now, there's been systematic changes, so I'm curious if we see that. But I'm sure these wins have to feel good. Um, and it has to feel great for Stuart Skinner. It sure does. Um, we started with tennis. We finished with Stuart Skinner and uh, uh, a gripe fest about net miners and how they're evaluated. Sounds like a good day to me, Shannon Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast. Thanks as always. Thanks for having me. Keep up with the tennis updates. I appreciate it. I could use the nudge. I could use the nudge. Uh, the great Shannon Goldman from The Athletic. Um, we'll hit a break. We'll come back and get on the Vancouver Canucks page because why not? Because they're dominating. And they're firing pucks at 107, was 107.9 Philip Hronik last night. Good Lord. Who shoots a puck? Yeah, 107.9 Hronik last night. All right, Ian McIntyre from Sportsnet.ca on the Vancouver Canucks page. Back in a moment across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on 360 and your favorite podcast platform. Here we go. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program here. Really quick clarification notes. This is from Melissa. 
Just a quick clarification about NCAA goaltenders playing in the AHL from yesterday's show. Mentioned again a couple of seconds ago, Shannon Goldman. Even a great like Ken Dryden didn't go from college to the NHL. He played 33 games with the AHL Voyagers in 70-71. I think Ron Caron would have been the coach there before being called up in March in brackets. My dad is the biggest Ken Dryden fan in southern New England, so these types of things were drilled into my head uh, as a little girl. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for the clarification on that one. Uh, Don't need much clarification on the Vancouver Canucks. They are flat-out great at every single position, including behind the bench. Ian McIntyre knows that. He's there to document every moment of it from sportsnet.ca. Ian joins me now. Ian, how are you today, pal? I'm doing very well. I'm, I'm looking at the NHL scoring leaders, and I'm reminded of <laughs> something that the, the late, great former Canucks trainer, Larry Ashley, once said uh, during the dark okay. days of the franchise, that the only time he saw the Canucks in first place was when he was holding the standings upside down. <laughs> and I keep, I keep turning, <laughs> of course, this is 2023, so it's on my phone. I keep turning my phone around, and no matter what, it keeps flipping to the top with Miller, <laughs> Miller Pedersen, and Quinn Hughes leading the NHL in scoring for a team that is now in first place on a tiebreaker in the Western Conference. Nobody could have envisioned this even just a month ago. So the, the question then becomes, you know, how? I mean, how do you go from what when – and again, like there's still a lot of runway here and a lot of hockey to be played, but, I mean, uh, this team is, A, fun to watch, and, B, just mowing into teams like a hog into truffles. And, I mean, Quinn Hughes is dis- <laughs> distinguishing himself uh, in a way that, that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. I mean, Elias Pettersson, I mean, every game that goes by, the price tag um, for Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin goes up, up, up. Uh, Quinn Hughes, if you had any questions about him being a captain, if you had any questions about JT Miller and his ability to pop at an advanced age by NHL standards, like all these questions are answered now, no? Yes, they are. And by the way, I'm glad I'm glad you're in radio because if, if you broke out, dived into it like hogs after truffles in print, I could be out of a job. <laughs> like, that was that was that was very good. But but yeah, you're right. Thank it's, you. Thank you. You know, everything everything is is going right. They've all come. They they they've all seem to have elevated, and, and suddenly reached another level together. And and you mentioned uh, or re- referenced Rick Tockett off the top, and he he deserves yep. uh, a huge amount of credit for being able. Uh, to get to these players and and get uh, a universal buy-in, and but especially with the top guys and the top guys deserve credit for this, that they were willing to do uncomfortable things that Rick Tockett demands on the ice in order to try to be better than what they have been. I mean, Pedersen and Hughes have been stars in this league. Since they arrived, Pedersen won the Calder Trophy. Hughes was a runner-up. And the only reason he was a runner-up is because a guy named Cale McCarr came along at the same time. You know, yeah. maybe the best gen, uh, defenseman of the last 20 years. So these guys have been good, but they haven't been winners. And what Talkett convinced them to do is to change their games and do things beyond just scoring. And, and they've all embraced that. And, and we're seeing the results of it for the team. You know, one of the highest 
compliments and and it's only last night that Hughes and and Miller caught up to Pedersen who had been the scoring leader uh, in the NHL solo. Mm-hmm. One of the highest compliments I can say about Elias Pedersen is when you watch him play night after night after night, you would not know that you're watching the NHL scoring leader or a guy who has the potential to win the Art Ross Trophy because he's not playing like a guy who's you know fishing for points and is simply an offensive dynamo. You, you see Pedersen you know, first on the back check. You see him finishing checks along the boards, and especially in games and at times when the Canucks are flat, uh, Pedersen is running into people and trying to get himself involved, trying to get his teammates involved. You see him killing penalties. You see him blocking shots. You, you just And then at the end of the night, you look at the score sheet, and he's got three points, he's plus two, and he's leading the NHL in scoring. The, the points right now are almost coming... Um, as a byproduct to how well those guys have bought in to to what the team needs to do, and uh, right now they're mm-hmm. right now they're formidable. They're like uh, hogs going after truffles. <laughs> that really found a home with you, Ian. Yeah, it did. I I'm going to use busted that, that I'm one not out gonna, early uh, in the interview. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to credit you either when it appears in print, but you'll know. <laughs> Well, there's a, there's an old saying in our industry, as you all know, greatness borrows, but genius steals. So by all means, uh, steal away. Um, so every year, every year at the All-Star Game or the All-Star Weekend, uh, I always try to bang the drum for one thing. Bring in the specialists. You know, bring in the spe- bring in like the the super fast skaters to take on Conor McDavid. Whether the players are, whether the players are legitimate all-star or not, bring in the specialists. And I look at Philip Peronik, and I see him cranking it up at 107.9 last night. I mean, this is like Zdeno Chara, Martin Furk, who may be the hardest ever um, ter- territory. Uh, and now I say to myself, you know what? Maybe he's the specialist that you want to bring in. Like, I'm, 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 leg- I'm legitimately curious here. Like, whether it's Philip Peronik, who is just like, who just hammers the puck. Or someone like Ryan Pulak with the New York Islanders who just hammers the puck. Wouldn't you love to see that at the All-Star game? Like, just bring in someone who's not going to be there as an All-Star, but has one skill that's better than everybody else. Like, would that not interest you? Like, just have a two-person showdown. Who shoots harder, Pulak or Peronik? Would that not intrigue you, Ian? Well, it would be great theater. Uh, I, the NHL, God knows, needs to continue to work on their on their showcase event and find ways to make it more compelling. I actually like what they've done with with three on three. Uh, but yeah, that, that mm-hmm. shot by Ronick, uh, honestly, I, I keep wondering if it's an, if that's a misprint because you know, 100, and se- 100 <laughs> miles an hour, like when people watch the skills con- competition and we all you know remember, the guys who hammer it, the Webbers and, and Al Iafrady in an earlier era and stuff. Iafrady, yes. But, yes. I mean, these guys are just getting over 100 miles an hour, a little more, and, and they're walking into the puck, right? They're skating from the blue line into the puck, which is, what is it, at the top of the circle. They get a little bit of run-up anyways. You know, that shot last night yeah. by Ronick, he's not skating into it. I mean, the puck is coming to him, so, yeah. so you're generating... It's like you know connecting with a fastball in baseball. You're using some of the energy of, of the pass 
to generate velocity on your shot. But that, to me, that was just staggering what he did. And it's the first time he scored this season, which is incredible mm-hmm. as well for a guy who does have that shot. And, you know, he's been such a big story for the Canucks because of how well he has fit in beside, beside Quinn Hughes. And, but if you took Hughes away, people would be talking about mm-hmm. what an incredible season Philip Roenig has uh, for, among defensemen, among his peers league-wide. It's almost like, you know, at times I, I think Devin Taves in Colorado doesn't get the credit he deserves because he plays so much with Kale McCarr. I don't think Philip Roenick has, has gotten yeah. the credit he deserves for his own season because he's been uh, caddying for, for Quinn Hughes since, since the year began. But uh, right now, like everything else with the Canucks, it seems to be working that trade that was so contentious at the time with a lot of people um, yeah. saying it was outright a disaster for the Canucks that they, they, they gave away the mid first round pick they got from the Islanders for Bo Horvat, they gave that to Detroit to get Philip Roenick. But the Canucks had identified him as as a number two right shot defenseman that this organization you know, hasn't had in many many years. And and right now it seems like they're, they're pro scouting and uh, GM Patrick Alvin's assessment of what Roenick was worth. It sure sure looks bang on. You know, there's one very, well, there's a few, but there's there's one that comes to mind here um, in the, for the purposes of this conversation. One very distinct characteristic about all hockey markets in Canada and all hockey markets that are successful in Canada, and that is no matter how good things are, I think this is more of a comment on Canadians really than anything else, but here I go. No matter how good things are, Hockey fans in Canada will find something to worry about. It doesn't matter if you're statistically tied at first in the Western Conference. There's always some Lady Macbeth sort of hand ringing down the hallway in the middle of the night. What is it for the Vancouver Canucks? Given how great everything is going right now, what is worrying Vancouver Canucks fans? Well, now you're just showing off because now you're dropping Shakespeare references, are you not? English major, man. I can try to put my degree to work. Like I, I, I spent four years at Guelph trying to educate myself out of a job, and I'm trying to make it work here somehow. Well, you must be the most prestigious Guelph graduate there is. Are you not? Not even close. Not even okay. close. All right. I'm so sorry. That was a gratuitous, ignorant West Coast shot at Guelph. <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. They're, the sports uniforms have always struck me as a little loud, but whatever. Um, what was the Griffins, question, Let's Jeff? go. I got sidetracked. <laughs> What are, Van- oh, yeah, what are they, Vancouver the, Canucks? Yeah. What, what are they worrying about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the sense the sense of impending doom. Well, that's kind of in our DNA as well. Anyone who's grown up in on the West Coast and watched the Canucks from childhood, uh, you you have this uncomfortable sense that there was always disaster looming, and it was the same way even you know when the the team was winning back-to-back President's Trophies with the Sedins and, and going to the Stanley Cup final against Boston. Uh, it, it, there's always this dread that that the good things can't last, that we're not we're not intended to have prosperity and happiness with with regard right. to to the hockey team. I think what they're worried. Well, I mean, Talkett worries about a lot, but the main thing he worries about is that somehow the team starts looking big picture or gets complacent or sees where they are 
uh, in the standings and it suddenly scares them or something. And, and so the, what he worries about is trying to just keep that focus day after day. He's got all kinds of, of, of slogans. He's not as literary as you, Jeff, but he's, you know, talk it has all kinds of expressions that have now become kind of catchphrases. And one of the things he says is earn your day. So the Canucks mm. earned their day yesterday with that comeback win against the Islanders. Now they got to earn another one and they have to earn their practice day. So I know organizationally, uh, at least from the coaching perspective, that's what they worry about. Is it somehow the focus wavers that maybe there's some satisfaction or too much satisfaction? Of course, there should be satisfaction with what's occurred to this point, but there might be too much and that they lose, they lose that edge. They lose that desperation and hunger that has been driving all of us. And that hunger is to be something better than what they have been for most of the last, let's say, eight years, but you could almost say 52 years. Mm-hmm. And the players truly are sick of losing, and that's, that's why they've embraced what, what Talkit is trying to sell to them and, and have played as, as a hungry, desperate team. I would say, uh, you know, beyond that, the bigger picture, the fear is, like every team, what happens if you have injuries, but also, you know, right. is, is, is the defense good enough? And this is a team that not only is leading the NHL scoring, they're top five in defending as well. So it's been, it's been pretty darn good so far. <laughs> um, but, yeah. you know, they, even though Patrick Aldean has almost entirely renovated the blue line over the course of the year but since the start of last season. I think there's still questions about depth, and that's being tested right now. Carson Soucy, uh, third-pairing guy, uh, just went on the injured list uh, after the game in Montreal, out six to eight weeks. Uh, and what happens if now they, they lose another? Um, you know, is, and, and what happens in the long run? Like if, if somehow... You know, teams find a way to make Quinn Hughes less effective. Is are there enough mm. other guys who can who can drive play uh, from from the back end? So I'd say that you know, big picture, long term, they, they they're still looking at trying to make their defense better, and that's that's been ongoing uh, since before Alvin and Jim Rutherford came here. It's why the Canucks are are linked to most. Most defensemen who co- who might be available, including Zadorov in Calgary, you know, because they they are mm-hmm. constantly looking to upgrade, and and they've certainly upgraded. Adding adding Susie and Cole and Hironik has made uh, a profound difference to the group. Uh, they still probably could use more depth, and and would like to make sure that the bottom half of the blue line is even stronger. So so long term. Those are the worries, but on a day like this, with you know, it's actually sunny here in Vancouver, believe it or not, and the team is what ten games with one one loss, and that was Saturday night in Toronto. Eleven games with one loss uh, in regulation time. So three guys at the top of the scoring race. Just everything is good right now, but it won't take long. If the team loses two in a row, I can tell you. That uh, <laughs> that inbred sense of doom in the market is going to come to bubble to the surface again. So let me close with this one. We're we're right up against the clock. Not only 
in? Am I not the most famous or one of the most notable people to graduate from the University of Guelph? I'm not even the most notable hockey person. Do you know who that is? I have no idea. Please tell me it's not free. Someone who used... Uh, oh no! He went to the, he went to the the uh, the evil purple university, University of Western Ontario. He's a London okay. guy. No, it's um, someone who uh, we overlapped. Uh, we actually lived on the same street. Um, and after my rec hockey games, uh, she used to serve beer and French fries at the uh, at the Griff Sports Lounge, and that's Cassie Campbell. Wow, is the most yeah. famous and important hockey person to come out of the University of Guelph. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, no offense, um, you're, har- you're hardly you know, in the same sentence as Cassie Campbell, hockey wise. <laughs> no, I know. So, it's, it's embarrassing. I should the, the the name shouldn't even like <laughs> escape my lips. I'm in such a she's in such a different stratosphere than I accomplished, respected, all of it. Hockey player, broadcaster, you name it. I'm still in the cheap seats in the back. Um, Ian, thanks as always for stopping by. Much appreciated, pal. Enjoy the game tonight against Calgary. Well, nice being on with you. I'm sorry you got some of my four-minute answers, and I ran I ran out the clock on us. But it was uh, it's a fun That's time okay. in Vancouver. Fun to be on with you, Jeff. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. Uh, don't worry, I asked the four-minute questions. Uh, thanks to Ian McIntyre for stopping by. Previous Ian, thanks to Shana Goldman, Mike Zeisberger, and Elliot Friedman, everyone who took part in today's show. Matt Marchese, David Sis, Lance Kennedy, and the returning Jen Rolnick. Great to have you back. Uh, enjoy the Global Series. Gets underway here in a couple of moments. This program returns in 22 hours. Okay, I'm done. Back tomorrow.